Welcome back to Monetize Media. I'm Kyle Scott. And in this episode, I'm without Jason, but I wanted to bring you a really interesting conversation I had with Kenny Coleman, founder of Bourbon Pursuit and Pursuit Spirits. For those of you who are unaware, and you would be if you're not in the whiskey, Bourbon Pursuit brands itself as the bourbon podcast. And that is an accurate description. These guys are thought leaders in the increasingly popular bourbon space. Not only do they give their own opinion, but they bring on key distillers and journalists and you name it in the whiskey space. And they are the go-to audio operation and I guess video operation if you count YouTube for anyone in the bourbon industry. And they've done an unbelievable job of growing their audience. First, with subscriptions on Patreon, of which I am one. That was an early one. Uh, Then they started white labeling, some barrel picks of whiskey, to now they're launching their own spirits line, which includes distilling and aging their own whiskey, a process which, for those of you who don't know, takes years, like five or six years. So Kenny has an unbelievable story on how not only grew his audience, but how he's monetizing it in a really unique way. So stay tuned. Here's my interview with Kenny Coleman of Bourbon Pursuit. Okay, so want to welcome in Kenny Coleman, who is the co-founder of Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, and I would say Media Network at this point, and Pursuit Spirits. So Kenny, welcome to the uh, one of the first shows here, and thank you for joining Absolutely. Thanks, Kyle. It's always fun to be, as I mentioned right before we started recording, on the other side of the table because I'm usually the one doing all the interviews. And I love being able to share our story because I think we have a unique path that we carved out for us and starting to get into other businesses outside of it. So it's always interesting to be able to talk about it too. So why don't we start off? Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about Bourbon Pursuit, how it came to be, what platforms, where most of your audience lives, and then just a little bit about the sustainability of it. You know, How do you guys actually earn income to kind to keep this going. And then also, I hate this, so many podcasts at the end, they tell people where to find them. So I want to do that at the beginning and at the end. So after you kind of give your intro here, tell people where they can find you off the bat. For sure. So we are Bourbon Pursuit, or should I say, I am one of three people that are the host of Bourbon Pursuit. We have a team of about five or six now, but we are the self-proclaimed official podcast of bourbon. So we bring on everybody that's in bourbon. These could be anybody from master distillers, authors, bloggers, pundits, Anybody in the media, anybody who means something, people that are out there hunting for rare bourbon, liquor store owners, distributors, I mean, you name it, somewhere within the chain of the corn is made to is being drank from someone, everything in between that gambit, we try to bring some sort of interesting angle to be able to talk and share a story. So sometimes it's getting to know the background and history of the distillers, getting people to understand that if you like Maker's Mark, well, hey, here's one of the people that helped revive Maker's Mark that almost went out of business and you get to understand the story of the iconic red wax versus people that are out there trying to get frustrated with always finding Blanton's in the wild or something like that. So (laughs) we try to take a lot of different angles and we try to do that and pivot and continually try to stay with new and interesting stories that can keep our audiences captivated and motivated and want to continue to listen as well. And so we started that back in March of 2015. Actually ended up starting because of our other, my partner in the business is Ryan. So Ryan Cecil, he's from Bardstown, Kentucky, from bourbon capital of the world. And he was originally going to start the podcast on his industry. He is in the lawn care industry. So he's always going around spraying lawns and doing that sort of stuff. And he's listening to podcasts all day. And he thought, well, I'll create one of my industry. Maybe he didn't realize the runway was going to be kind of short for it. And so he had a friend that said, well, you're from 
Bardstown, do something on bourbon. And so he came to me and he said, would you like to be interested in doing this? Because we weren't great friends at the time. We were acquaintances, but he knew that I was into tech and I knew the tech side of things. And I was really getting to bourbon. I was, the bug had bit me. I was collecting, running around, hunting stuff left and right. And I said, well, let's go ahead. We'll see what's out there. And there was other podcasts that were starting out there, but there was more like B2B and news stuff. There was some other things that were people were just sitting around a microphone saying, oh, this tastes like vanilla and caramel. And I said, there's got to be a better angle. Like there's got to be something else. Like I want to listen to something. And, and that's really what I found is when I listen to podcasts, I want to be captivated by a story or I want to learn something. And so that's sort of the angle that we took and really went the interview route of trying to bring on interesting folks in the industry that people could really start connecting with and people connect with those brands. And that's been, again, kind of going now for six plus years now. So it's always one of those things that it's easy to get a podcast started because it's a low barrier to entry. It's really hard to keep it going just because you do end up getting through some form of burnout. And that could be through the idea that you're not seeing the ROI. I mean, you kind of talked about like, how does monetization work? I mean, it took two, three years before we start seeing really any dollars rolling whatsoever. And so when you're spending 18 months on a particular project and you're burning the candle at both ends and you're spending 80 hours a week between your day job and this trying to make it successful, the burnout, it's a real thing. And it definitely happened to me at one point because we sometimes you get a sponsorship and two, $300 here and you'd be like, all right, but that's not sustainable. That's nothing that you can really sort of hang your hat up on and say that's a definition of success in my opinion. So I kind of put something out there on Twitter a long time ago and I said, this is really getting harder to manage. I don't know how much longer it can go on. And I also want to always give a shout out to Mark Gillespie from Whiskey Cast. He was one of the big supporters early on that just said, you know, keep with it, good things will come. And there was also somebody else that put it out there and they said, hey, why don't you start a Patreon? This is the early days of Patreon. This is like 2016, 2017 sort of stuff, maybe 2017. And I sort of looked at it and I said, what the hell? Like, might as well go for it. And uh, sure enough, before you know it, you know, we had 50 members signed up, uh, 75, 100, and we had some some real reoccurring revenue that would make this sort of viable. And so that was going on pretty well for some time. We actually ended up doing our first barrel selection. For anybody that's not familiar with the whiskey world, you get to go to a distillery with you and a group of friends and taste through different barrels and select your own barrel of whiskey. It's quite an amazing experience. And we did that with what we call the, a group of friends of ours that we have a monthly podcast with. And we ended up providing that as a mechanism for people in our Patreon community to go and purchase those bottles from a retailer because they could be a part of it. They have a bottle from it. And so that sort of blew the doors off when we realized there's a, an opportunity here. And so we started figuring out how we could scale this up and do a lot more barrel picks. And now we have our own barrel pick program. And we actually have somebody on our team that manages and runs it as well. So that has been one thing that really catapulted the growth of Patreon. And now we have a little bit over, I think, 1,050 members in Patreon now. And so that creates a, a good amount of reoccurring revenue. And as much as I'd like to say people are there for the content, they're there for the bourbon. But that's okay. I'm able to own up to that. Don't sell yourself short. I think a lot of people like supporting, you know, someone they have an affinity towards and they listen to a lot. So yeah, I'd like to, like I said, hopefully they're there to support me, but hey, getting access to privately selected barrels of bourbon is a good perk as well. So that's fair enough. That's what we'll say. <laughs> All right. So that's an excellent overview and there's a lot to unpack there. And I have a lot of, I want to drill down deeper on a number of things you touched on. And I'm going to start with the niche part. You mentioned Ryan and the lawn care industry. And I think one of the things that is really 
really, you know, really important these days is, is actually having a niche. You know, old school media audience building were these big conglomerate publications that covered sports and politics and news and everything like that. And we've seen the internet be able to pick these things apart and put them in their own barrels, so to speak. No pun intended. So, you know, lawn care, yeah, probably too niche to develop a, a sizable audience that you can do something with. But to me, bourbon feels like a particular sweet spot where it's narrow enough but broad enough appeal to actually drive a sustainable audience. So talk to me a little bit about your thinking. What was the criteria for this being the sweet spot of getting an audience that you could really develop some deep ties into, but at the same time, not being so broad as general alcohol or, or even just whiskey in general? Yeah. So one, I think it was kind of by accident, but I also want to preface this too, that maybe at the time lawn care felt almost too niche. But now you go on YouTube and there's people that have all kinds of just crazy taking care of grass and they've got millions of subscribers. So there's definitely a niche there that people, if you're really into things, I know there's a thing called like lawn talk on TikTok. So there's people that are really into grass and making sure that they manicure their, their lawns very nicely. But for us, it was one of those things that I'm one of those people that I consider myself like the dream crusher a little bit because I will go and I will, and people come to me with an idea and I can always say, I will guarantee you that there is somebody out there that has already done it or can execute it better than what you're thinking. And when he had this idea, I just said, well, let's go and look. And so that's when I started doing my typical market research. I started listening to other podcasts and figuring out, okay, what are people doing that isn't being done yet? Like, where is the niche that needs to be filled? And at the time, the big podcast at the time was, was Whiskey Cast. I had mentioned Mark from Whiskey Cast earlier. He was doing it, but he was covering the entire whiskey spectrum. And at this time, this is when we started in 2015, is really when the hockey stick growth of bourbon started becoming really well known. In the marketplace and sales, people are starting to line up for Pappy Van Winkle. Like The names are starting to get out there. And we just said, we're going to focus only on bourbon because... And now I'm so glad we did because if we would have ventured off to scotch and rum and tequila, we there's too much content. There's just too much. There's already too much content with bourbon. Oddly enough, for anybody that's just listening to this and you're like, wait, there is? Yes. You'd be traveling more with scotch. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's true too. <laughs> but even on the bourbon side, there's 2,200 distilleries now across the United States. You know, you've got their eight or nine powerhouses in Kentucky that make 90% of the world supply. But there's so many stories out there. There's things to unravel and... and things to kind of talk about. There's the aspect of the cultural side of things where people get upset because they can't get a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. And those are the things that we like to cover and like to bring to our audience. So I will also encourage anybody out there that is trying to find something is to find that niche and own it. Because you can, and to take a line from like Gary Vee or Gary Vandachuk, maybe that lends to him, like you can make $80,000 a year just talking about peanut butter. Like if that's your thing because of the internet, like we live in a great time where the, it's very low barrier to entry to do a lot of different things. And bourbon was just the niche that we wanted to tackle in the podcast space. And we've been very successful with it, been able to grow it to a, a fairly significant audience. I'm always trying to figure out ways to, to pivot and grow the audience. But it's also, I have to understand that we're a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. So A, you have to want to listen to podcasts. B, you want to have to listen to podcasts on alcohol. C, it's got to be about whiskey. But B, or D, it's even got to be about bourbon. So it's really deep in there. But thankfully, there's a, a very large audience out there that's that wants to know more and 
they want to kind of hear the same stories that we do. So it's a vested interest that we both have in it. And so we can hopefully try to make that connection with our listeners at the same time. Yeah, and there's a couple of different takes on the Gary V take, which I've heard him say, and uh, I forget who wrote it, but there's the concept of a thousand true fans. If you could develop a thousand true fans in anything, you can make it work. I've actually been thumbing through the 22 immutable laws of marketing. And one of them is creating your own market, right? If you're second in something, you're late. But if you are the best at just putting a unique spin on it, then you can own that market even if someone else is close. So to your point, someone may have already had a whiskey show it was like, hey, well, all right, I'm going to carve out this. We're going to be the official podcast of bourbon. And just that unique spin on it and just drilling down a little bit deeper allows you to be the first or the best of that, the leader of that. I know there are other bourbon podcasts, but I know when I first stumbled upon you guys a few years ago, it was literally typed bourbon into Overcast. And then there was a bunch. What you guys had presented just in terms of artwork and then upon listening to it was so clear. It was like, okay, this is the thing that is actually worth listening to. So it's really, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I want to spend some time on distribution and format. You're a podcast. That's your bread and butter, so to speak. And you guys have the line extensions with the bourbon itself, which we'll, we'll definitely get into. But I was looking, I mean, I'm just going to read this off. This is really impressive to me. 13,000 followers on Twitter, 13,000 on Facebook, 188,000 on TikTok. 57,000 on Instagram. There's a Reddit channel. You got one to 2,000 paying subscribers on Patreon and then 11,000 on YouTube. And all of the content on particularly TikTok is mostly you creating very native TikTok content. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at you here. You know, we're, we look to be about the same age, right? Like we are not in the target demo for TikTok, but you're really good at it. And that is such a different skill set than forget about the subject matter of bourbon, but podcasting in general. And then your YouTube videos have a different format. And it's not like you're just recutting stuff up and putting it out on these platforms. So talk to me just about your platform strategy and then how much you focus on creating platform-specific content versus taking the core content, which is the podcast, and then cutting that up and dispersing it out to those channels. Because you guys do some really good native work on all of them, which is, is impressive. No, I appreciate it. No, the, the social media side of things, honestly... I thought we were too late to Instagram. We probably could have been, you know, an extra 20, 30% more than we are. That's because at the very beginning and back in 2015, I was like, who the heck wants to scroll and just look at pictures? That doesn't make any sense. Like the dialogue is on Twitter. That's where the audience is. And so I put all my eggs in that basket and I realized, okay, that might've been a big mistake. Like granted, Twitter is great. We still do a lot of stuff there. But then we also saw the rise of basically underground black market Facebook groups for trading bourbon and stuff like that. And I said, okay, that's where our audience is. That's where we need to be. That's where the discussion groups are. And so I would use that and I'd start putting in some links, the podcast to some of these larger discussion groups. And that got a few hits and got a few followers every once in a while. But after a while, I had to stop doing that because uh, it was funny in the words of Fred Minnick, who joined our podcast in I think 2018 or something like that. He goes, Kenny, quit doing it. You look desperate. So, <laughs> so I stopped doing that. And so we, we had to just try to figure out that's like level one when you're starting to make it like, okay, I don't need to shill for my own stuff anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you don't need to share your own stuff. Like let other people share it for you. So like, that's, that's one of those things that you can help with the growth of it. You know, really the social media side of things, like I said, I felt I was late to Instagram, but we were able to play catch up pretty quickly. 
And that's just one of those things that we try to make everything, and even with Tech Talk is too, it's like, it's not about the podcast, it's about us, it's about what we're drinking, like we're trying to be a part of the community and just share the good content that you want to be. Now, of course, every once in a while, we're going to slide in some podcast core content stuff just to make people aware that, yes, if you're going to be following us, also know that we also have a great podcast that you can listen to. It's not just pictures of what we're drinking this week. And that's what we try to keep continually pushing those angles of, of like, where does our audience live? Now, the TikTok thing, that blew up by accident because it was a viral video, or should I say a, a video of mine that ended up going viral. As in, I was sent a promotional product from this company. It was this $800 copper ice press. And I put it on TikTok and actually showed me using it. At least the good thing is it had our podcast logo on, like engraved on this piece of copper. But it's one of those satisfying things that you watch this thing drip down over a block of ice and you pull it back up and then it's a circle. And all of a sudden that, you don't know what the algorithm is going to do. And that blew up. I go to bed, the wake up the next morning and it's got 3 million views. And I'm like, what just happened? And it keeps going and going and going. And by the end of it, we're up to 10, 11, 12 million views over the span of a week. And most of the people in the comments are haters. And they're like, why would people spend money on this? Like eat the rich and whatever. So I was like, yeah, I'll just kind of not worry about that. And I made a few follow-up videos. I got in contact with another company that said, hey, we have a relationship with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. If you could do one with his tequila, we might be able to get him to repost it for you. Well, I'm not going to say no to that opportunity. So it's exactly what I did. And lo and behold, about two weeks later on Terramana Tuesday, The Rock sits there and reposts my video with my hands in it and stuff like that. So it was one of those cool things where you know, you got to see the spotlight just for a minute, uh, you know, your real 15 minutes of fame there with it. But that's kind of how TikTok blew up. But I've been able to try and continually convert that audience into podcast listeners. I use a, a bunch of different tools, you know, shout out to beacons.ai. I use them as my social media sort of website to utilize for quick links and stuff like that because it can track exactly what social platforms you're getting the most links from or the most click-throughs. And I can sit there and see, okay, well, we need to put more focus on TikTok or we need to do it through Facebook. We had this many links go or this many clicks go to this particular. So I try to take the data and pivot and try to figure out what can I do with it. And so that's just the social media side, the core platform stuff. You know, it's I try to just get it as, as many places I possibly can try and let the content do itself. So I've also, you know, as a part of this is I've automated a bunch of stuff on the back end too, because posting it to 19 different social media channels as Reddit and all these other places you said, it can get very time consuming. But with a little bit of coding work and some help with Zapier and some trial and error, you know, in the span of a few days, I was able to take a, a published podcast and now it automatically distributes to 19 platforms the morning it's released without me having to do anything. So that's sort of one of those things that I'm able to kind of blend my actual job with this hobby of mine and, and help bring some more time back into my life. Because as I mentioned earlier, Kyle, when you're spending 80 hours a week burning the candle at both ends, it, it takes a toll on you. So any way that you can shave off a few hours that you would spend doing routine work is where I would look to try and automate a bunch of things that, that we do for the, the show. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. And I want to get into the automation piece in a second, because I did hear you talk about this on another podcast. I believe it was Wild Business Growth, which was really good. And it sort of informed some of my questions here. You mentioned the full-time job part. So I think for, for so many people who are creating content of any type, and I've been here as well, where you have a full-time job, and now you have this thing, which clearly has traction, 
which you clearly love doing and are enthusiastic about, and speaking generally here, talk about the time demands of that because you're not just a podcast anymore. And this is what I was kind of getting at with the question of like native content. It'd be one thing if you had automated a script to cut up or take a clip from a podcast and kick it out to TikTok. It's another thing altogether that you're recreating whatever the viral thing of the day is on TikTok where, you know, it's some cheesy pop song and you're somehow spinning that into bourbon. That is, that takes a different level of attention and you seem to be doing a lot of this yourself or with a very small group. So talk about the time demands of doing everything that is required to do here. And do you batch things together? And then I know you're married, right? So then there's family time on top of that. How do you balance these things together? Yeah, much to my wife's chagrin, I'm very much one of those people that I feel like I had to be productive all the time. I'm not one of those people anymore that likes to sit down and waste away my nights watching TV and getting caught up on latest shows. I, I want to build things like, you know, this is about a, a creator community and that's really what I like to do. I like to continually just build things and and build an audience and continually try to promote what it, what it is that I'm building. And so when you're talking about the TikTok side of things, oddly enough, I joined TikTok it was pre-pandemic a little bit because I was like, all right, I'm just going to go figure out what this thing is. And I'm just scrolling. I'm just looking. I'm like, this is actually kind of fun. And I use that as an original, just kind of like another creative outlet because I can't do this stuff on Instagram. Facebook just doesn't get it. Like there's no other platform that I can just have fun with this sort of stuff. And so that's where I kind of just looked at really just taking like what is popular, like what is the viral sensation of the week and spinning it in terms of bourbon. And that's kind of what started getting some of the original like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 followers on TikTok was just original bourbon content. And it was really fun to be able to do that and just have fun with it. Like it's just something that you just couldn't do on any other platform. And now you have a lot of the people coming into TikTok and they're doing bourbon reviews or they're doing other things on there. And so the platform is growing and there's now a, a bourbon focused community inside of TikTok, which it was funny. Like I got to TikTok to get away from the bourbon stuff. Like it was my release of just like not always bourbon, but it's something that's just fun and completely different. It's my moment of Zen to kind of break away from reality, if you will. You probably benefited from being relatively early. So what was that like uh, on Twitter? I mean, I'm just looking at the follower counts here. You know, TikTok is astronomical, right? So today, if you go on Twitter and you just start something fresh, it's going to be much harder to gain followers one-to-one -one as it will be on a newer platform. So were you amazed at how quickly you were able to get audience on TikTok as you were relatively early? And then I guess the moral of the story is once anything reaches a critical mass, then you just everyone floods to it because it's just a new all-purpose platform, which TikTok is now. But even two years ago, it was relatively new. If you weren't, it was teenage 20-something thing very early. And then now it, it gets to become Facebook eventually where the grandmoms are on it. And then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure out what the next one's going to be. But no, you're right. It's one of those things of, of being an early mover and early entrant into something gives you a little bit of the ability to, to capitalize on it. And that's what I felt TikTok was in the, the very early days. So being able to kind of be the first one on there and start building an audience, I remember very vividly like the day we had crossed 50,000 users or 50,000 followers on TikTok, all through bourbon content, not through the viral video or anything like that. And I talked to our team, I talked to Ryan, I talked to Fred, I go, guys, we just hit 50,000 followers on TikTok in six months, which took four years to build on Instagram. 
there's something here that we need to start really focusing on. I haven't been able to pay as much TikTok, uh, much attention to it and do stuff because of time management and stuff like that. So as much as I'd like to be able to take some other recommendations that said you need to be posting three TikTok videos a day, like it's not possible for me. I've got I've got my work. I have to be able to pay attention there. Of course, family and the podcast and everything like that. So I, I do try to balance it out. So when I do post things, I try to do it in, in a quality way, in a fun way, and it's not always just promotional or something like that. So anything that continually involves other people or tries to see the, the fun in what we're doing and what we're building. You know, when you talk about time management as well, that's something that we have finessed and refined over the years. So our method to doing stuff with the podcast is that we only record for our Thursday releases. By the way, we do three podcast releases per week. So our main releases that are on Thursdays that involve bringing in interviews and guests and kind of figuring out the stories of people in the industry, we only record those four weeks out of the year. And so what we'll do is we do that through Ryan's downtime. So he has his busy season is not busy season. So his not busy season is January, February, as well as the very hot months of July and August, because that's just yard time. You're not really doing anything when it's cold out. So we schedule a week in each one of those months and we will cram about 20 recordings into each of those two weeks. And so we just, we try to knock them all out and that way we, or have this sort of like backlog and catalog of stuff that we can go get to. And our goal is to release evergreen content because if you go and you say, oh, next week we're going to be releasing this XY bottle, like it doesn't matter. Uh, mostly podcast listeners listen within the span of the next 30 days. So by the time you do anything that's very timely, it's usually already passed. So what we want to do is focus on that evergreen content that people can always go back to. They can always look at and revisit at a later date. And if we say, oh, we're on episode 300 and whatever now, and say, go back and listen to episode 120. We talked to this guest and we talked about, you know, barrels or do something, you know, whatever it is. So on the time management side, we've been very efficient with being able to do guest scheduling and, and be able to make sure that we aren't pulling our hair out every single week. I think that's been one of the things that maybe a lot of people that are getting to podcasting don't know is if you're constantly chasing around and trying to find a new guest every single week, it becomes much more difficult. So now we do those sort of batch recordings. And by being able to do that, it provides us enough time to do proper editing. Um, you know, if we need to outsource some things, we can do that too. So it, it just, it gives us a little bit more breathing room instead of constantly feeling like you're always trying to hit a deadline or fighting fires or something like that. Batching is, it's a really interesting concept and a good way to, I think, label it because particularly with something like a podcast or video, it's an entirely different process, workflow, and just headspace to when recording versus editing versus distributing and marketing and the back end stuff. So I had heard you on some podcasts in the past say, hey, we recorded this a while ago. I didn't realize the extent to which you really condense these together. I think you put out a tweet last night or maybe it was the official account, probably you, that you guys did like eight recordings yesterday. Did I get that right? Well, it was, it was through the week. Yeah. Okay. All right. Still, that's a lot. Yeah. But I mean, we try to condense things and, and most of the time the, the timing works out great. And whether it's with our guests, we do it in my home studio or whether we do it remote and we can always make it work. Thankfully, technology's gotten a lot better. And so we can record much higher quality than what we could way back in the day. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. You, the evergreen part, I just want to put a pin in this for the audience. So I have a background in sports. And for 10 years, one of the things I really struggled with was sports happen in 24-hour cycles. And when you're covering sports, whatever, no matter how much effort you put into something or how good it is, chances are 24 hours later, it's relatively useless unless it's like some long feature piece. And that to me was always a pain point of just, you're, it's like a baker every morning. You know, you're getting up and you're creating it and someone's consuming it and then it has no shelf life after that. So a good takeaway is anyone who's listening wants to start something, try to pick something that has a shelf life. Because to your point, even though a lot of people consume it early, you can do things with it. You can cut it up. You can use it in the future. You can reference it or just record it in advance and release it six months later and have it still be relevant. So I think that's a really good, uh, really good point you bring up. Yeah, we're selfish and, and lucky in, the, in that regard too, because we can, as you'd mentioned, we can reuse content if we need it. Thankfully, we haven't had to. It's not like there's been a moment where we said, gosh, what are we going to talk about this week? Let's just go and recycle an old episode. We haven't had to do that. There's always something to be able to talk about. But we do lend ourselves that capability now by being able to have a bunch of this old evergreen content. And, you know, I should also mention, you know, the time management side, we have three different releases per week. So even with Ryan and I, we release also a Friday episode now that we record on Wednesday nights called This Week in Bourbon, where we just talk about the news of the week. Oddly enough, people still listen to that 30, 60, 90 days later, which is great, but it's also one of those things that it only has a shelf life of a week, but people still listen. That's, that's great for us too. Yeah, so you, you get to a good point here. So I wanted to ask you about the interview. So in the beginning, and you still do, it's mostly an interview-focused show, but you were an interested observer early on. You were interested in bourbon. You wanted to talk to people who had great stories, and then you could be a great conduit to the audience that was interested in this. But over time, at least in my view, you guys have now become an authority, let alone having your own bourbon, which we'll get to in a second, but you guys have become an authority on bourbon. So you're not just interviewing people who are relevant. You guys now are relevant. I'm sure people like me and many others want to talk to you about your thoughts, maybe not on creating content, but on bourbon itself, right? So talk about that transition. And was that weird for you? Or was it like, hey, we're just helping. We're kind of a fan here interviewing people. And now people want our take or want our reviews and our whiskey quickies and things like that. Was there a point where you noticed that shift? And then how important is it to establish the legitimacy first? I think one of the key mistakes I always see with people creating content on any platform is everyone's an expert. Yeah. But it's like, okay, well, what have you done or what have you done to prove to me that you're an expert? And I know Gary Vee, you know, if we're, if we're talking about Gary Vee, he's on this all the time. You know, don't be fake, right? Everyone's an entrepreneur on Instagram, but show me that you've actually done it. So talk about building that legitimacy and then becoming an, a literal expert. Now, that's awesome for you to say. It's funny. We still don't feel that way. It's, we're always trying to say that people are going to find out we're, we're false or we're faking it all the time. But, <laughs> It's one of those things that we didn't come into it thinking, oh, we're going to go ahead and build up our knowledge and then we're going to turn it around and we're going to do all this sort of stuff. A lot of this stuff just happened by accident. It was a, maybe just a natural blending process at the same exact time. But yes, at the very beginning, we were asking the questions because we we're generally curious. We didn't know everything about the industry. We knew enough that we were interested in the hobby, we were interested in bourbon, but we didn't know everything that we do now. And so we looked at ourselves more or less like sponges or leeches when we went into all these people in these interviews and we paid attention to everything that they said and we took away nuggets after you know, the recording button hit stop and they would keep talking about something. And those are some of those conversations I wish I didn't hit the stop record button, but those are those things that you'll always remember and you'll always learn you know, how are people blending? How are they doing distillation process different? What do they do about their barrels? Like, what are they doing? Like, so you get a lot of market research as you're going through this and you're just soaking it all in. And 
there really wasn't a time when we flipped it around and said, oh my gosh, like people think we know what we're talking about. I don't really know if there was a moment that I could say that the light switch flipped or people started paying more attention to it or people wanted to know more about just us. But you know, I think it was probably about a year or two, maybe about two years ago, we brought Fred on and we started doing episodes with just the three of us. We didn't bring in... Explain to the audience who Fred is because if, if you're not in the bar, and the important and his stature in the space. So Fred Minnick is by far probably one of the most biggest authorities in bourbon. He's written several New York Times bestselling or Wall Street, whatever it is, bestselling books. He is on the cover of a lot of different bourbon magazines. He is like the guy in bourbon because when he goes and does his end of the year whiskey rankings, it clears shelves across the country and people go and they buy and hoard everything that he says that you should go buy. And so around 2018-ish timeframe, maybe 2019, I can't really remember, is when he reached out to us and said, hey guys, my media people said that I should start a podcast, but I really like what you're doing. Mind if I just join yours? And so we kind of baked him into, you know, part ownership of the company. And so he's been able to help with the growth of the podcast too. And, you know, he goes and does events around the country and he tells people about the podcast. So he, he's an extra extension for marketing for us. And he's such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to bourbon and stuff like that too. But we started recording a few episodes with just the three of us, Ryan, Fred, and myself. And we realized how much we liked doing it. And we realized how much people really enjoyed those conversations too because they felt like they were just in the room. They just, it wasn't another interview that you were listening to, but you felt like you were part of the dialogue. And that's when we said, holy crap, we should probably just do more with just the three of us, just discussing bourbon culture, discussing what hot topic we want to talk about. And when we started doing that, I think that's when we realized, okay, people actually care what we think about. And we're getting ready to go into another episode here in the future that will eventually be released where we looked at the market and we said what's out there. And this is also another validation. And we never anticipated this happening. When people will go to a different distillery, we'll go to a bar or a restaurant, and we'll have a logo on our t-shirt and people will go, oh, I love the podcast. Like really cool. I really love what you're doing. But sometimes we'll go into a distillery and we'll meet somebody and they go, hey, yeah, we have to listen to your podcast as part of our training and onboarding. We're like, wait, what? They, they'll have specific episodes set about that particular distillery that you have to go and listen to, to go and learn about the company as part of your training and onboarding. And we kind of saw like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like that's what people are doing with our content now. So that was a, a validation of what we had built that is kind of turning into a real world scenario that we can look back and say, that's pretty cool. Like something that we never anticipated to be able to do is now turning into uh, something that people are consuming all the time in myriad of different ways. So I want to get into now, so we've talked a lot about the audience building and establishing yourselves, right? So I want to talk about the business, you know, for lack of a better term. At a certain point, everything you just described, I think, is the is what people set out to do when they begin creating content. They want to become an authority. They want to build an audience. They want to have fun with it. They want to do things they think are cool for you. It's going in and seeing people at distillery say, hey, I got to listen to these guys. It's having the authority, someone like Fred Minnick, come to you and you don't have to recruit him. He's recruiting to be a part of your show. That's got to be a pretty big feather in your cap. But at a certain point, I think everyone comes to this conclusion where, is this sustainable? Can I keep doing this? Both the time commitment and am I bringing in income to either justify the time I'm spending on it or not lose money and be spending my own money to make this work? Did you have a point where you were like, I don't know if this can continue on. Something needs to change. We need to flip a switch and get some more cash flow to make this work. Or just sheer burnout. Yep. And if so, what, you know, what was sort of the impetus 
behind that? And then what eventually got you to get over that point? I also want to tack on something to my last thought before I, I went over there, because I said there's, we're going to be doing a new episode and what gave us validation is that we have talked to other companies and they said, oh, we've learned something and we shifted our market focus, our brand focus, or we did something because of what you said in the podcast. And so now what we're doing is we said, all right, well, we're not getting to get into complete consultation of, or advice or something like that. But what we'll do is we're going to give it away for free. And so I put a, something out there and I said, go ahead, fill out this form. If you have any questions about like how you would see your brand changing or anything like that, put it in here and we're going to use it on an episode of the podcast. We're going to start maybe a new series of giving away free consultation advice. So it's just one of those things that we're trying to figure out new and interesting ways to be able to do stuff like that. Smart. Yeah, so on the sustainability side, there is, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the show, there is this overwhelming sensation of like, is burnout going to happen? And a lot of that comes because you don't see the ROI, you don't see the followers, you don't see the money coming in, you don't see all this sort of stuff. But you stick at it, you stick with it. At some point, there will be something that flips and starts working your way. For us, it was somebody saying, go start a Patreon. It was doing the first barrel pick. Fred wanted to join. Those are like three potential moments where things just completely turned for us. And you kind of saw the numbers start rising. You saw the money start rolling in. And at some point, yes, you start bringing in all this sort of stuff. But as you start bringing on other things, you start doing the barrel program. You start trying to figure out how do I keep my paying audience on Patreon always engaged and keeping them informed of everything. Like all that stuff even takes more time commitment. And yes, you have to build it up by yourself until you get to the point where you say, and this is, I had to give a tip of the hat to Ryan on this one is he's always said, you need to hire the right people when you feel like you're overwhelmed with something. And fortunately, one of the great things about building a Patreon community is that you have like-minded individuals that just want to help see you succeed. And they want to be a part of what you're building too. And <laughs> for lack of a better term, we don't have to pay them either. We pay them in whiskey, which is great. Uh, we pay them in whiskey and high fives. So we've had the ability to bring on people that are taking care of our barrel pick program because that alone takes up 10 to 20 hours a week usually because of scheduling and doing randomizer videos and trying to logistics planning. Like it's a lot that goes into it. But you give them access to the some of the same great whiskey and I'll send them a few bottles a year to say thank you. And it's a great relationship that's being built off of it as well. You know, there's somebody else that manages our sticker creation for barrel picks, which if you're not in the whiskey world, you might not know about it. And then we also had the fortunate opportunity is when I suck at sales. Like I'm terrible at it. I can't sell ad space for anything and I don't like to cold call people. But when Fred came on, he said, hey, I've got this guy that did all the sales for Bourbon and Beyond, which is a music festival here in Louisville. And he knows all the distilleries and he can help sell ad space. And I said, give me his number. And so <laughs> now we have somebody that is on a contract basis that all he does is go and sells ad space for us. And that's great because that's revenue that I wouldn't be able to generate on my own because I'm focused more on the content delivery side. So striking those relationships and making sure that we can scale is really the thing that's important to me because that allows me to focus on the podcast, which is for me is like content creation's king, making sure that we are continually bringing in new and innovative ideas to our audience, that they stay captivated. And that is eventually going to feed into our spirits business and our bourbon business because 
that doesn't exist without the podcast. And so we have to grow the audience that is going to help feed that business that will eventually help people drink a lot of good whiskey here in the future. Yeah. So what is the business ambition, I guess, is a good question. Because advertising, there's really no marginal cost to producing a podcast. You know, the mic, you get the mic, you get the hosting, but it's, it's relatively, there's not capital intensive. You could sell ads. Patreon is basically almost donation money coming in. Selling bourbon, uh, particularly a regulated product, which I do want to talk about the business part first, and I do want to talk about the regulated part because that's got to be really tricky. But what is the ambition there? Is it to create a media company? Is it to create a bourbon brand? Is it to do both? And then, you know, what does that revenue mix look like? You don't have to get into numbers, obviously, but how do you think about, hey, this is where most of my focus is? And then you mentioned, I think maybe before we started, just the amount, or maybe at the beginning, just the cost associated with the bourbon business up front initially. So, that's a totally different mindset than podcasts and advertising. So talk about that in general. Yeah. So my focus right now is kind of split between the two because we have to start planning. This is the worst part about it. I wish we had a product we could sell. We could just have it manufactured in China and then resell tomorrow. But that's not the whiskey business. It's You have to plan a decade out in the future if you want to do anything. And so the podcast business is really good right now. We've kind of got a, a well-oiled machine in regards of how we can get sponsorships in and how we do our partnership distributions and everything like that. So everything's everything's great there. But really the podcast for me, it's a mechanism and a vehicle to help push our bourbon brand. Because as I mentioned earlier, advertising, selling it sucks, but it works and it can bring in the revenue. And we are continually trying to figure out new ways to be able to, to maximize that too. So earlier this year, or should I say back in 2021, we made a switch to a different podcast host. We ripped out all the embedded ads. We're now doing dynamic insertion across all of our podcasts. So we freed up a lot more real estate. And that's really what helps go into our evergreen content is be, people can go back and listen to episode 10 and you get an a relevant ad versus hearing something that was back in 2015. So that way we can really scale our real estate from there. So that's the podcast. How do you find those rates compared to the embedded ads? Because you know, so many people say the embedded ads work great because they're host red and they're really sticky, but it's really hard to monetize, especially the long tail. Well, I mean, it's a way that we can do it based off impressions. They're still host red. They're still done by me. They're just dynamically inserted. And there's just a few different platforms that allow you to be able to do stuff like that. And it's something that most people are looking towards. And I wish I would have done it a long time ago because now we had to hire another contractor to go back to every single one of our old episodes and take out all the baked in advertisements and re-upload them. But it also gave us the opportunity to kind of go back and remaster the episodes because it wasn't the greatest audio when we first started. We got a lot better since then, but garbage in, garbage out. They're a little bit better and you're not constantly like changing your dial on um, high, medium, low volume because of somebody yelling the mic or something like that too. So we got an opportunity to fix a lot of that sort of stuff. But as I said, the podcast business is really going to be the funnel for our spirits business. So the idea of the spirits business, we never got into this thinking, oh, we're going to start a bourbon company. It all happened by accident. Most people that get into podcasting, they start writing, they write a book or they do a, a class or they do con consultation or something like that. We were in a very unique opportunity that we have, we talk about a product that a lot of people love and it's a consumable and we can make our own and kind of put it out there. So back in 2018, we 
did this episode with a few of our kind of close friends in this, what we call a roundtable episode. And we talked about this brand that was started out of a liquor store and they were kind of doing their own private label, which we said, this is not anything new. People way back in the day, grocery stores used to have their own private label bourbons and pharmacies and stuff like that. But it's a spin on something that's really, it's old and it's new again. About a week and a half later, I get this phone call and this guy says, hey, I helped build that brand. Would you be interested in doing your own? Well, tell me more. And so that's kind of how it all started. He gave us a really unique opportunity with some really good financing terms because this business is not cheap. It's very capital intensive. And by being able to do that, we started off just doing what were called single barrel releases where we go and select one barrel of bourbon. We bottle up in our own packaging, our own label, and we get it out to a few different markets and we sell it and we kind of see this revenue generation come from it. Now, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that we said, hey, this is fun, but where can we go? And that's where we said, or sure, we were actually encouraged to say, you need to come out with a scalable product because single barrels aren't scalable. They're a pain in the butt for the most part. So that's when we started creating a new flagship line that we could really start scaling where we're dumping 40, 50, and in the future, like 900 barrels at a time to be able to create this product and then distribute it across the United States. And that is going to be the goal one day. And so right now, uh, you'd mentioned kind of like the money thing going into it. So last year, we spent $1.3 million in putting down new make barrels. And we're going to spend that again this year. And we're going to spend it again the year after that. So we're going to be somewhere around like 6 to $8 million in debt before we can actually start making real profit. And that's where the capital intensive part comes in, is that you know we're always constantly... Is that scary? Is that scary? I mean, that's a big outlay for any business. I've done the financial modeling and everything like that, and it all works out. The, the unfortunate part that doesn't work out is that we can't pay ourselves until about 2028. And that is just the part of you know bringing on investors and paying back the investors before you get your money. And that's the part of nature of, of business and making sure that you're doing right by them. But we also set up very good terms on, on what we're doing. And so far, raising you know a million dollars has been relatively simple. And either we know really rich people or, or you know there's people that just want to be in the whiskey business. And I think it's just kind of fun because people have some extra disposable income and they want to put it in something that is interesting, unique. And I think the good thing is that right now with the story that bourbon has is that it is on a rocket ship. We thought it was on a rocket ship two years ago. We were completely wrong. It's just now feeling like it's getting on a rocket ship because every single distillery is dumping millions, if not hundreds of millions into their own distilleries and really ramping up production because they don't see this trend ending. They see this going for the next 40, 50 years of people really being into brown spirits. So that's why you see all the investments happening. And we said, all right, well, we're not going to be a major player at all. Like that's not our goal. We don't have the capital to be able to do that, but we have enough capital and enough audience reach that I think that we can own a little slice of the pie. And that is where we will be able to go sort of full time into bourbon is when the bourbon business becomes a little bit bigger. As I mentioned, podcasting is great. You can make six figures a year doing it, but you have to also figure out and take into account, you know, health insurance and all these other things that a good, stable paying job takes care of for you. But we looked at the bourbon business as something that is more sustainable over time because you're creating a product that's going to live on the shelves. And the only thing that you're really going to have to do after that is continual promotion, continual marketing, and always staying in the headlines. And so, Thankfully, you know, we have the podcast that is going to be that sort of launching off point. We have an audience that's already there and it doesn't really exist without the other. 
people have always asked us, so what's the exit strategy? I haven't really figured that out yet. I don't want to say that I'm going to be 65 years old still doing the podcast. I don't know if that's going to be a thing, but putting it in the hands of somebody that's able and willing to kind of continue with the the quality that we've been able to do and everything like that is something that would be interested in the future. But like I said, for now, one doesn't exist without the other. And so we have to have that marketing vehicle to really help grow the brand. And that's sort of where our future is heading right now. That's such a, I think, a general theme of whatever content creation has been over the last five years or so. You have so many legacy companies that were product companies and you know, pick your niche. And they're trying to back into how do we get our own content? So they have products. And then how can we get our own content so we can have some built-in marketing and do, you know, quote unquote content marketing. Whereas, you know, here's an example. My kid's favorite burger down at the beach this summer was a Mr. Beast burger. You know, so they know him not as the creator, but as the, the cheeseburger company. But he's a creator who's able to leverage that brand to create a product, which is exactly what you're doing. And I think that is a complete shift in the way our economy in some ways you know, consumer retail works in some ways, which is you're starting with the audience and then creating the product off of that with the built-in marketing vehicle. So do you, on the end state of that, do you view, if you guys are ever acquired in the future, do you view that being a media company buying you guys or a distillery buying you guys? You know, and I guess that might answer the question as to how do you think of yourselves today now that you're sort of in this gray area of we're creating media and content versus we're a product company. Sounds like product is where the, you know, where the upside and and the the financial benefit is, but where does that kind of teeter for you where you're no longer a podcaster, you're, you're a bourbon brand? Well, they are different LLCs, so they are completely separate businesses. So we do we do try to separate it. You know, the branding in itself is loosely connected, is the way that we like to put it. It's not heavily used with the same color schemes or patterns or anything like that. We use a little bit like the same font, you know, back and forth a little bit. But for the most part, we try to keep them loosely connected because they have to have some sort of connotation. But at the end of the day, you know, the media side of things, I don't foresee anybody buying us out from the media side. It's not like Spotify is going to give us a deal or anything like that. We're not we're not Joe Rogan. We're not that big. And I don't just anticipate being that big. We're four niches deep when you think about it at the end of the day. We've had plenty of people that said, hey, come join our network. But for the most part, sometimes joining a network doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good for you because they want your numbers, they want your advertisers, and you got to do a rev share. And we've been really successful on our own. So it's always something that we have to continually evaluate if it's the right partner and if it's the right network that wants to come in and do that. You know, I've had other dreams of creating even more podcast content and we're actually going to be launching a, another podcast as well that is just, it's called Behind the Pursuit and it's talks about how we built the bourbon brand. And so it's really a, another story of a branded content that is about, of course, the bourbon business. And we get to kind of talk about this is a peek behind the curtain of starting a spirits brand and you can kind of be along for the journey as well. So kind of one of the first people to ever do something like that. So we're excited to be able to create more content there. Again, I've had other ideas of creating additional podcasts, but you know, it's, the, it's the time commitment thing that that's involved. And right now, the, the bourbon pursuit side is doing fantastic with it. But you are right. Is the end game of getting acquired by a, a Pernod or a Diageo or a, a Constellation or something like that, would that be cool? Yeah, it'd be cool. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. And we'd always entertain those conversations. But for us right now, we have our 10-year roadmap and trying to figure out, okay, do we need to bring another partner? Do we need to you know, give up 
any equity in the company? Can we do this on our own? Because it is, it's a, it's a big financial investment to get into this and you're playing with a lot of other people's money. So we want to make sure that we're doing right by our investors and making sure that we're building a, a really healthy and sustainable business. We're also figuring out a lot of the loopholes, not loopholes, but some of the pitfalls, I guess you could say, of dealing with a regulated product and how much money that you'll be paying the government in excise tax. I'll, I'll give you an example. I started doing the, the math and I said, by our final scale point, when we're putting out 300,000 bottles, around 50,000 cases a year, we'll be paying the government around $975,000 a year in federal excise tax. Like that's just tax that you just have to pay because you're making a spirit. And I said, there's got to be a different way around this. So we figured out different ways and we said, okay, in 2026, well, we have to own our own warehouse. We have to get our own distilled spirits license. We have to do all this sort of stuff. So we're already planning to, to do that, to just like figure out like, okay, how can we shave off $500,000 of this and not have to pay the whole thing? So it's one of those things that we're figuring this out as we go, but that's the fun part of being able to continually learn in this business and, and find different things. But as you had mentioned, yes, it will be cool to kind of have those conversations, but if not, we've once we get to 2030-ish time frame, like the way that we have the financial model planned, we're going to have this sort of hopefully working like a, a well-oiled machine and we know exactly how many barrels we're putting down, how many barrels we're using, what wills we can dedicate to a single barrel program and what our revenue stream would look like. So it's, it's a lot of planning, but we're excited for the future. That's so great because it's not, I mean, so many people with an audience just white label a product and, and completely outsource it. But you're talking about opening up you know, your own warehouse. So you're doing this as a full-on business and never mind the fact that it's 10 years out. And for people who don't know, the reason it's 10 years out is, you know, bourbon's not good unless it's aged, right? I don't know. I'm sure you have an opinion on the minimum. I mean, six years, it starts to get, right? I mean, six to 10 years, probably the sweet spot, but it's a long-term process to create good whiskey. You know, I'm up here in the Northeast and there's some Pennsylvania distilleries and, you know, some of their stuff is good, but it tastes for, it's young, it's two years old, right? And you can, you can notice it in the taste, but you guys not only are building the actual business and not just slapping your name on something, but then you have to wait to actually really monetize it in any way. That's a lot. Talk about the regulated part real quickly, like beyond just the dollars and the taxes, just dealing with that. Because I know I remember seeing emails from you, I guess, when you were doing the barrel picks about how difficult it was just to be able to ship it to somebody uh, who was a subscriber because there's, I'm in Pennsylvania, like forget about it. This is, this state is nuts. <laughs> you're in the worst states for it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're right. It, a regulated product like this is never makes it easy. And really this all goes back to prohibition. Once prohibition was repealed, it gave states individual freedoms on how they want to take over alcohol. And so every state is different. And some states are controlled, like where you're at in Pennsylvania, where it's done centrally by the government. Some go through a different kind of distribution model. The three-tier system in itself is broken for the most part. And the idea that you can't ship alcohol like you can just order stuff off of Amazon. This actually already exists in Europe, but to do this in America, like it feels like it's foreign to some people. And they're like, why would anybody want to do that? Like this, you got to, the kids are going to get this and they're going to drink it off of doorsteps. But there's so many people that are just backwards in this particular industry because, well, A, the people in the middle make the most money and so they don't want anything to change. And, and so we've been voices and advocates for a lot of this reform for a few years now. And so working with different retailers and different distributors to figure out, okay, how can we do direct to consumer? How can we get our selections from 
you know, the retailers that we do choose to work with into the hands of consumers across the nation. It's definitely been difficult. There's a lot of hurdles to kind of get over because yes, as a regulated product, nobody wants to have the government come knock on their door and say, you're getting fined because you did this. So we definitely have to play the line there and make sure that we're doing right by, uh, we don't want to break any laws you know, blatantly or anything like that. So we just want to make sure that we're continually trying to do right by, you know, of course, the greater good, the consumer, uh, our audience, and making sure the kind of government gets their fair share too. We just have to play the part. And I will say that it, it does get frustrating because you just want access to it. You know, you being up in Pennsylvania, if you just, if you were just to order anything off of Etsy, sure, you can go get it. Doesn't matter what it is. It, I think the thing that kills me the most is that gun laws are more or least restrictive than, than alcohol laws. Marijuana laws are starting to open up and people are, it's free reign for marijuana, but alcohol, it's been around forever. Like there's so much money that's tied up into it that nobody wants it to change. And so you've got a lot of things that it's going to take a, a long tail of, of reform and advocacy and people that want to see real change happen, uh, whether it's, like, as I mentioned, from the direct-to-consumer route or whether it's having people get access to literally everything. And I think that's the problem because you, know, you said you live in Pennsylvania. If you wanted some something from a distillery that's only available in Alabama, you have no option. You literally cannot get it unless you drive down there, fly down there, whatever, and bring it back. That kills interstate commerce. That kills the idea of being able to grow your business further than your backyard. So I can't wait to sort of see a lot of those rules and laws start get you know, broken down here in the next few years. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm in PA. I mean, I have to drive over. I'm relatively close to Jersey, so I got to drive over a bridge to, you know, get good selections. The nice thing about PA is it's the price is controlled, so when you can find it, you get it at MSRP. But it's it's almost impossible to find the good stuff, you know. And they have a state run lottery, so that's a that's a whole separate podcast. It sure is. All right, so Kenny, this has been great. I want to just put you on the spot. Three quick questions at the end, like quick hitters here. One, you mentioned Gary V, right? So I want to give our audience each interview a takeaway that they might be able to put in the place or a resource. So you mentioned Gary V, him or somebody else. What has been a great resource for you to consume? Podcast, book, newsletter, whatever it is. That's one. Two is what is a great tool that you use that helps with the business, particularly on the content side? And then three, you know, parting words, wisdom advice, you know, someone who is creating content and wants to branch out into having their own products or their own supporters. One high level piece of advice, uh, pretty open ended for you. So on the first one of like, what do I listen to? Like, where do I get my content? So for me, my focus has shifted over the years. So I used to be all about sort of like entertainment, like what's gonna make me laugh, I'll download a one hour Jim Gaffigan you know, comedy special and listen to something like that. But, you know, as I've started to move into more of an entrepreneurial mindset, that's sort of what I've grown accustomed to listening to. So yeah, of course, Gary Vee, but sometimes Gary Vee, he can, and with good reason, some people might think he's too much. Yes, sometimes he's a little too much. I like Seth Godin of Akimbo. I think that's another great podcast because it's just more of a, you know, looking back, it's not all about like, you go, you got to go buy NFTs today, like blah, blah, blah. Like it's very retrospective looking back at sort of a wider landscape and, and really good business acumen that people can follow. There's a, another one on the Ramsey Network that's uh, called Entrepreneurship or something like that. Basically just talking about like how to build teams, um, how to make sure your employees are happy and everything like that. And I kind of do that as part of my day job as well, just as, as a manager trying to make sure that I have a great work culture that people want to work for me and making sure that I'm continually pushing them and rewarding them at the same exact time. Can you say your question about like the tooling and stuff again? 
Yeah. So what's a tool? You mentioned Zapier. Maybe that's one you know that helps you get your job done more efficiently or that is indispensable to you. Yeah. You named it right there. Zapier is by far the, the tool that I can't live without now that I started using it. I originally built it as a way to do a little bit of automation. It might have been on the social media side. But soon as I started getting into it, I mean, I probably have 40 different things that run in there now that are constantly telling me if I get a new follower on Twitter that has over 10,000 followers, I need to go and check out their profile. Just doing things that are being very selective on making sure that I am good with my time because I can automate a lot of these things that I would typically have to go manually do. So Zapier is one tool to be able to do that. I'm always looking for new ways to find the ability to make it easier for myself to do time management or to do podcast promotion, production, or, or anything like that. So so I do like Zapier. If you're doing your own podcasts, I'm a big fan of using Auphonic as a online tool to be able to do simple sort of like noise hum and leveling and everything like that. So if you're a podcaster, I definitely go and check that one out. That's sort of the cheap and easy way to get it done versus saying I need to outsource somebody that knows how to do EQing, uh, which we do now. But when we know our, for like the episodes where we, or just Ryan and I, we're doing it and we know exactly what we're going to get out of it and we know that we can do it with really high quality, we don't need to go and off load it to another resource that does you know, all the EQing and we have to pay a good chunk of money to be able to do that sort of stuff. And then lastly, you said sort of advice on, on other for content creators. I mentioned it already is that burnout is a real thing, but I would also venture to say that when you're making your investment into trying to become a content creator, whatever platform it is, make sure you invest in the tools and the equipment that's going to give you the best possible quality. I think at the very beginning, and I feel at the very beginning of the podcast, we probably lost a lot of people that go back and they, if they started on episode one through a hundred, it probably sounds like crap because, what should I say, one through 30, <laughs> one through 30, we'll say that because we actually started the podcast, not with these sure SM7Bs that are connected to mix pre things that all cost like $1,200 to even have like one microphone running. Back in the very beginning, we had a Blue Yeti that was connected to a laptop and we sat around it and all talked. It was terrible, like terrible, terrible, terrible quality. And if I could go back, like that's one thing that I would fix because you could have the best content in the world, but if it sounds like crap or if you're doing YouTube and it looks like crap, nobody's going to watch a shaky video. So invest in the equipment that's going to make it work well for you. I mean, if you're just one of those people that just wants to be a, a social media influencer on TikTok or on Instagram, invest in a real camera. Like, granted, you can do a lot of cool things with an iPhone 13, but you're going to get a lot better quality if you're using a DSLR at 4K and you can upload that stuff. Like, it's going to show. So I would always say that if you're going to invest in something at early on to become a content creator, always invest in the right equipment because it's going to pay dividends in the end. And you don't have to go back and cringe because you can look at your your earlier stuff or hear it and you go, oh, how did people how did people stay with us? But thankfully we tracked on and people did. Your setup is putting my audio uh, technica mic to shame here. I actually <laughs> had I used to have a blue eddy, but it was way too yeti, but it was uh, too echoey. Well see, we actually started so we had a blue yeti and then we moved to those ATR twenty one hundreds. And then now we had after a while we started having have money come in and Fred picked up these types of microphones and I got microphone envy. And I said, that's it. We're, we're laying down. We're getting all new equipment. So <laughs> yeah, there's no going back. Once you're there, there's no going back. No. 
Uh, listen, this has been great. So tell people again where they can find you. Uh, plug anything you want to plug and then uh, hang on a sec at the end. I'll, I'll sign us off. For sure. So thank you again for having me on, Kyle. This is a pleasure to be able to kind of talk about my story and, and I hope other people liked or picked up some few good nuggets along the way. If you want to learn more about brown water, you want to get smarter about it and you want to listen to the official podcast of Bourbon, go and subscribe to Bourbon Pursuit on every platform, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google, Pandora, iHeartRadio, you name it, we are going to be on that, including all the apps like Overcast and Podcaster, Podcatcher. I mean, you name it, they're brought everywhere. You can also follow us on all the socials that Kyle mentioned earlier, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok, all at Bourbon Pursuit. And if you want to try our whiskey, you want to go find out more about it, it's pursuitspirits.com. And you can see what single barrels we have available. There's buy now links to a lot of them that we ship directly to DC that you can get in your hands in 30 some odd states around the country. And we are going to continually growing that brand over the next five to 10 years. And so hopefully if you don't see it on your store shelves, you will in, like I said, probably close to five or so years, but we are on store shelves in Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, Georgia, and Colorado. Yeah, like five states. And we'll soon be in Ohio. So we're excited to be able to continue the distribution and get on more retail shelves around the country. So also Pursuit Spirits on all those social channels as well. Awesome. And I can vouch for the, the podcast. So we look forward to the bourbon and I can vouch for the podcast. If you uh, want to sit down and have a drink, there's no better thing in your ears than Bourbon Pursuit. Just the music, I think the initial guitar strum gets you in the mood for a drink right off the bat. There's a funny story behind that too. So that guitar strum, I have tried to convince the team and I said, can we please get new intro music? And I've put it out there on Patreon and, and people were all like, no, keep it, keep it. It's great. So that intro music, was just a free loop in GarageBand when we started, like way back in the day. We didn't even go and search for it. Ryan just had it on his computer in GarageBand, and that's just what we went with. It's good. It's iconic. Yeah, it's iconic. <laughs> you, should, you should trademark it and call up Apple. Yeah. Kenny, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Best of luck with the podcast and the bourbon brand. So that was Kenny Coleman of Bourbon Pursuit. Just an unbelievable interview. There is so much there that really sticks out for me. But the key is how Kenny has really cracked the nut of having a product that you're able to sell to your audience. Most people in the content game, not all, but most people monetize through products by white labeling things, easy things like apparel. Some have gone a level up. You take someone like Mr. Beast who is selling cheeseburgers and he's finding kitchens or ghost kitchens throughout the country who can make a burger to his spec and slapping his brand on it, which is a branding play. But Kenny is doing, Kenny and team are doing the best of both in that not only are they using their brand to create an offshoot product in whiskey, but they're actually making the product from scratch. And again, for those of you who don't know, making whiskey is not easy. It's not just like making a product, manufacturing it, and selling it, which is difficult enough. You have to sit and let it age five to six years, and then you have to find out if it's actually any good after that period. It's hugely capital intensive. It's an entirely different business than content or even selling simple products, especially because it's such a regulated industry. Alcohol alone is regulated, and then you think about selling it online and across state lines, and it's a whole thicket of complex navigation that, frankly, I wouldn't even want to go through. 
So Kenny is just an unbelievable story, not only of growing an audience and really unique ways to do it, using Zapier to automatically pull old podcast episodes, some really good takeaways from this one. But for me, it's the ability to launch a product and do it in a like from the bottom to the top way. So hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Kenny Coleman. If you like what you hear here, be sure to subscribe to Monetize Media wherever you get your podcast for more great interviews, learning from creators who are growing and monetizing their audiences. Thank <laughs> you.